Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion Land Ministries, and this is our Arab Shabbat broadcast for B'nai Shalom, our internet congregation. First of all, thank you for inviting us into your home or wherever you're at uh, to be a part of the Sabbath together, and I pray that our service is an encouragement, edifies your soul. Let me um, share just a couple of quick announcements uh, with you. Uh, we're coming up on Hanukkah season in December, and we're hosting a Hanukkah conference December 15th through the 17th here in the Norman area. Uh, it's uh, hosted by Hebraic Family Fellowship, the local congregation that we're a part of here, and uh, it's starting to fill up. We still have about 75 seats available for people to come and be a part of it. You can register for that online at the ministry for that conference. And we would love to see you come and be part of the Hanukkah celebration with us for the Festival of Lights. Um, also, uh, you should be checking your email box, inbox, uh, because I've sent out a special end-of-the-year letter uh, that's from me that's about the status of the ministry, and um, look for that, please. And um, we also have a special offer in that, so uh, look for that email, and uh, we appreciate all that you do for us. All right, uh, without any further ado, uh, let's go to Kiddush and the blessings. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. Kiddush, the blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Borei Pri HaKahafin, Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Chamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Now, husbands, let's bless our wives. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for giving us wonderful wives of Proverbs. And Lord, I pray, thank you for the wonderful wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her as she rises while it's yet night to see about the ways of our household. And I pray that you would bless her and encourage her and strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful blessing she is. I pray that you bless her with your very best blessing and that you would encourage her and strengthen her in all things. And that I confess that I love my wife. So we thank you, Lord, for our wives. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Now let's bless our sons.
time for the Baruchu. Baruchu et Adonai Hamvorach. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Leolam Vahel. Blessed be the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Michamocha. Mikamocha Baelim Adonai. Michamocha. Nedar Bakodesh Nohora Tehilot Ose Fele Ose Fele Who is like you, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord. Who is like you, O Lord. And now, for the blessing of our Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et haderech Yeshua, b'mashiach Yeshua. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in the Messiah Yeshua. V'yishamru, v'yishamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat ledorotam b'rit olam, b'ni u'vein b'nei Yisrael o'thi le'olam, ki sheshet yamim asa Adonai, את השמיים ואת הארץ, וביום השביעי שבת ויינפש. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and rested. And now if you can all please face east with me for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Baruch Shem Kevod, Malchuto, Leolam Vayet. Yeshua HaMashiach, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of His glorious kingdom forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. And now for the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha b'chol levavcha u'chol nafshecha u'chol meodecha. Ve'hayu ha'dvarim ha'ele asher anochi mitzavcha ha'yom al levavcha. ושיננתם לבניך, ודיברת בם בשבתך בביתך, ובלכתך בדרך, ושכת בך ובקומך, וקשרתם לאות על ידיך, והיו לטוטפות בין עיניך. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your home, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your arm, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, 
and you shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
to the book of Genesis to chapter 25. Hold your finger at verse 19 where our portion will begin for this week. And as you are opening the scripture, as always, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Bachabanu Mikol HaAmim Venatan Lanu Et Torato Baruch Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. 
Amen. Our Torah portion for this week is entitled Toledot, which comes from the first phrase in verse 19 of chapter 25 where it says, And this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. That word genealogy, sometimes translated as generations or family history, is the title of our Torah portion. This is one of the final, this is the final Torah portion where we are going to talk or hear about the patriarch named Isaac, the promised son, the son of Abraham. We will have some of the stories, but again, in our scripture, there is very little in the Bible specifically having to do with Isaac. Many of our other portions and passages of scripture talk about other uh, people in the family of Isaac, whether the Akita, which is the binding of Isaac, was more a story about Abraham. And then we're finding a bride for Isaac in, our last, week, in last week's portion was more about the servant of Abraham and Abraham himself going to find a bride for the promised son. And then our portion here, we'll talk a lot about Jacob and Esau, where they will be born, and we will start the narrative of the life of Jacob. There, so there is very little in the scripture having to do with the patriarch Isaac. It adds to the mystery of who he was, what he represented. I spoke last week about how even the rabbis look at the life of Isaac and it's almost like this idyllic uh, view of his life that he uh, was a man who he never left the promised land and he was he lived a good life and that he was almost the ideal uh, person to kind of replicate your life after. Abraham went through a lot of trials and tribulations Jacob will go through a great number of trials and tribulations in his life and we almost look at Isaac as this life that we want to pattern ourselves after, at least that's how uh, Judaism looks at it. And we see that as believers in Yeshua, we see that parallel between Isaac, the promised son, and Yeshua, the Messiah. But again, the mystery is there. Why is there very little about him when it turns out he lived longer than the other patriarchs? He lived longer than Abraham and Jacob. We do talk about here the birth of his sons. This is where we will begin the story of Israel. Because Jacob will later have his name turned to, changed to Israel. And he will have a number of sons. And we will learn about the entire life of that family and all of those tribes. And all through the rest of our Torah cycle. So what we have here is we almost have some of the earliest seeds of all the other instruction that we will receive in the Torah cycle. I'd like to read here now uh, the beginning portion of our uh, Torah portion and I'd like to look at some of the, at this blessing that God, when he speaks actually to Rebekah, the wife of Isaac. Let me read here now, starting at verse 19. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as a wife the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padamaran, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went in to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the other shall serve, the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in the womb. 
The first came out red, and he was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Here we have the story many of us have heard before. I want to look at some of the details of this story and looking at truly the faith of this family continues in this narrative. Let's talk about Isaac for a minute. Isaac being the promised son, that the son of Abraham, that through his line all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, to do that, we have to have some offspring. We have to have a seed that goes forth from Isaac. And it was a number of years before he was even married. And so he said he was 40 years old when he was married to Rebekah. And then she was barren. She was barren, just like in the same manner that Sarah was barren, could not bear sons, to her being in, of old age, was not able to bear a son, and it was a miraculous birth that Isaac was even born in the first place. And then we have Rebecca. She too is barren. And a plead before the Lord is what is needed for her womb to be open and for that to be, for that blessing to continue and for that line and that lineage to continue. So that took a miracle as well. And we'll see this pattern replicated in Jacob's life as well when he loves Rachel later on in his life and she will be barren, unable to to bear children. This is a pattern through all the patriarchs and we see this and we see this pattern replicated. So when we see this, we have to ask, what's going on here? Well, I think what it does is it continues telling us the faith of these patriarchs, the faith of these men, that this promise, that they believed in this promise so strongly that it didn't matter if it took 20 years or 15 years before anything took place. 25 years Abraham waited before he had Isaac. So Isaac, that same story, that same narrative, waiting 20 years before he bears children. What, that just continues that story of that faith to wait patiently with you believe the promises of God he will deliver on those promises it's also very interesting here that we have this conversation this blessing placed upon Rebecca that the Lord speaks to Rebecca in this way he gives the blessing first of all she has this turmoil inside during the pregnancy she probably felt a lot of kicking punching if you will obviously she's wondering in those days obviously we didn't have the technology we do to determine the birth whether there's twins in the womb or not so she was in turmoil and she prays before the Lord what is going on here she's obviously concerned that it might be something to do with the fact that she's been barren for a number of years she doesn't want to lose the pregnancy she prays to the Lord and it turns out the Lord says there are two nations in your womb there are twins that's Great explanation why there might be a little bit more kicking and a little bit more uh, uh, turmoil in the womb at the time. And God grants this blessing to her. Once again, we see a, a conversation between God and someone, this being Rebecca, and not to Isaac. Why was this promise not given to Isaac? In the same way that Abraham received promises from God and then we question and wonder, did Sarah know about these promises? Did she know about the plan to go and offer Isaac as a sacrifice? Did she know all of the promises that God gave to Abraham when she laughed and when she heard the news for the first time that she was going to have a child that 
Abraham had been told that previously. And once again, God sometimes communicates to one person in, in these conversations. And so she, Rebecca, I believe, is truly the messenger of God through this process. It does, we have no description that God gave this promise to anyone else except for Rebecca. We assume that she shared it with her husband. We assume that she shared it with her son Jacob, whom she loved. But again, this is how God spoke to this family at this time. Very interesting. Clearly, this is a prophecy. This is something into the future where it says two nations are in your room. We're not talking about two, two boys, two nations. So we're speaking already into the future that this is a greater prophecy. It says this, one shall be stronger than the other. Which one? It doesn't say the older, it doesn't say the younger. It says one shall be stronger than the other. What this prophesies to is that there will always be a contradiction or a conflict. These boys will not be the same. And we speak into the future here, knowing into the future that Esau will become a, will raise up a great nation that will become enemies of Israel long time from now. And even speaking into modern days, we believe that some of the conflict with whether it be the Palestinians or Arabs in the land were descendants, our ancient descendants of of Esau, and that Jacob, obviously, he will raise up a family and a nation known as Israel. And so we have a conflict. There will always be one stronger than the other. Which one, we don't know. Again, what we see, and we, if we look at just modern day, the comparison between Jews and Arabs, the Arabs are a great and mighty people, while the Jews are one of the smaller religions of the world as we know it today. And so one appears to be mightier than the other. However, there's a time, and we believe in a prophecy, when Israel will be raised up above all nations and will be stronger and mightier than all nations. And so that it's possible that this prophecy is still fulfilled in the future when Israel, the sons of Israel, are raised up and are mightier than any other peoples, including the descendants of Esau. So this is a prophecy into the future. There will be a conflict and a contradiction. These two will never be on equal terms. And we, but however, the prophecy continues and with very succinctly and does say this, the older shall serve the younger. That the one of promise, the one who will be the one called by God, will be the younger one. And we see this pattern continued throughout the patriarchs, that it was Isaac that was younger than Ishmael that the promise goes through. It is Jacob who the promise will carry on through, the younger, he being younger than Esau. And we'll also see this blessing carried on in the sons of Jacob, that it will be Joseph, and he will be the son of promise moving forward, and it will not be any of the older firstborns of Jacob. So this is a pattern that continues all the way even through the sons of Joseph with Ephraim and Manasseh, Ephraim receiving the blessing being the younger of Manasseh. This again is a pattern of the patriarchs. So very clearly here, Rebecca knows this promise, so she throughout her entire life will look for the fulfillment of this prophecy, looking for the younger to rule over the older. Also very interesting here about, obviously these were twins, but it's clear that these were not identical twins, that these were fraternal twins, because Esau had a different appearance than Jacob. Now, 
Our story continues here for the end of chapter 25, only for a couple more verses. However, this is one of the more powerful stories between Jacob and Esau. But again, we only have a few verses that describe this story. Follow along with me, starting at verse 29. Now Jacob cooked a stew. Obviously, the boys are a bit older now. Obviously, Jacob's able to cook. Esau's able to hunt. Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me some of that red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called... Edom. Edom means red. So it's kind of like a nickname that was given to Esau because he was red in appearance. He wanted red stew. That was kind of the guy's nickname, if you will. But Jacob said to him, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. And he ate, he drank, he arose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. We all have heard this story before. And you look and, we, and again, the scripture doesn't give us a whole lot of detail. There's just a couple of verses that tells us this story. Now it also says in the scripture in the prophet Malachi that it says God looked upon Esau and he hated Esau. That's pretty harsh words for describing so that God would actually hate somebody. You look at this and you, you could kind of see this between a couple of young men where it's like, ah, they're just kind of joking back and forth. One that would say, look, I'm about to die. He's tired. He's weary from hunting. He's not going to die. He can go multiple days without food. It almost looks like it might be a joke between brothers. But Jacob, understanding the seriousness, uh, seriousness of this, he tells Esau, swear to me that you would sell me this birthright. And he does. And he doesn't seem to care. He doesn't seem to, to recognize that. He somehow thinks that just because he's still the, the firstborn, that somehow carries the day. That uh, it's like that, that this doesn't mean anything. However, the rabbis have a very interesting thing to say about this passage of scripture, and it shows more to the heart and the intent of Esau. If you do look at the uh, timeline of the uh, ages in which the patriarchs were alive when they died, various things like that, Abraham lived long enough to see his grandsons born, to see Jacob and Esau born. Uh, they were born when Isaac was 60 years old. Uh, Abraham had Isaac when he was 100 years old. He lived to be 175, so that means he died when the boys were 15 years old. That's interesting, because the age of 15 is possible that you can, when you picture this in your mind of Jacob and Esau, they could have been about 15 years old. The rabbis say, and many uh, uh, commentators state, that this event took place at the funeral of Abraham. That it was the honoring of the death of Abraham, the amazing man that he was, and that that's what people were gathered. That's what the food was being made for. In fact, even to this day, lentil stew is considered to be a mourner's meal that somebody who has passed away, somebody will make a meal for them and share that with them to comfort them through the loss of their loved one. And again, it goes to uh, many things that I've talked about before where the covenants that are formed, making a meal and sharing a meal with somebody is an aspect of covenant. It's an aspect of forming a covenant. And so when you actually share a meal at the death or the funeral of somebody, it's almost like an honoring of the covenant of their life. So the sages say, that's what was going on here. That's what that food was for. Esau, what's he doing? He's coming in from the field. He was hunting. He's hungry. He grabs some food. He eats and he leaves. 
Not showing any honor, any respect of what is going on here. Now, when you just read the scripture, perception would say, well, Jacob, he's kind of, he sort of just swindled it out of his brother. And our story will continue for the rest of this portion, and we'll have the story of where Isaac will receive a, or Jacob will receive a blessing from his father Isaac that he thought was intended for Esau, but then he'll take that blessing. And Jacob, over many years of time, commentators, even amongst Christian, Judeo-Christian commentators, have called Jacob a swindler, a liar, a cheat, and that he took these things from Esau. When that is simply the perception, but what you have to look at is the heart of the individual, and what we see in anything that we learn or study about Esau is that he does not have a heart in the same way that the rest of the patriarchs do, a faith in God. He doesn't. He he thinks that this birthright is just something that's going to be handed to him, rather than something that he will earn through action or prove that he is the man that should carry on the covenant. That is why God hated Esau. That is why he despised his birthright. And that is why we have this story and these things being passed along and that we have this narrative of Jacob receiving these blessings, this promise, and this birthright. Chapter 26 of Genesis uh, is a passage that's very interesting because it is truly, in my estimation, the only passage that is directly about Isaac and not about another character of the Bible. This is where we learn, after the, the, the boys are born, we then learn about Isaac. How did Isaac live after, um, after Abraham had passed on? Where did he go? Where did he dwell? Well, we have the story of him that, uh, I'm going to paraphrase here, that there was a famine in the land. And the Lord speaks to him, gives a promise to him. He says, don't go down to Egypt, because that was what you did when there was a famine in the land of Canaan. You went down to Egypt, where the Nile River was, and where there was still irrigation, and there was uh, plants that could grow, even through drought. And so there was always food down in Egypt, Egypt, it seemed. And so when there's a famine, that's where you went to go get food. But God appears before Isaac and gives the promise to him, says, do not go down to Egypt, dwell in this land. And he confirms this covenant the same covenant that he swore to Abraham. Verse 4 of chapter 26, it says, I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. That's the same language that he gave to Abraham. I will give to your descendants all of these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. God confirms the covenant with Isaac, just as he did with his father Abraham. Very interesting how he, God describes that Abraham kept the charge, his commandments, his statutes, and his laws. That's language that sounds more like it's from the book of Deuteronomy than it is from Genesis. And this is one of the things and instances that I like to find in Scripture, and I actually have an acronym for it, I call it TBS, Torah Before Sinai. And so where we see the patriarchs, or the men before Moses and before the law, given from from Mount Sinai that they kept laws they kept commandments in the same way that Noah knew what the clean and unclean animals were Abraham knew the commandments of God and he followed them they kept kosher they kept those things even before they were written down in the book of the law by Moses so interesting to find those sort of uh, those things in scripture before the laws actually given from Mount Sinai 
Isaac dwells in this place here in the land of Canaan. He runs into a king by the name of Abimelech. Now, this is the same Abimelech that Abraham dealt with. We don't know if that's a title for the king of the Philistines or if that was if it was the same man that Abraham interacted with a number of years before. Uh, if you look, I think this has to be at least about 60 years after Abraham had made covenant with Abimelech uh, at this time. However, it could be the same king, could be a different man altogether. Regardless of that, what we do is we have a, a somewhat of a conflict between them where they say we have another interesting story where Isaac describes his wife, Rebecca, and calls him his sister. Yet Abimelech, seeing this happen before with Abraham, he doesn't act upon this, but instead spies on him through a window, sees him being endearing to his wife, and knows for a fact that this is not his sister, and it in fact is his wife. What follows after that is that a great amount of blessing comes upon Isaac because of this. Abimelech tells all of his men and all of the kingdoms and says, Do not touch this man, his wife. Do not cause any harm to come to him. And so he puts a protection around him that nobody's going to come against him. And immediately following that, Isaac sows in the land at a time of famine and he reaps the harvest a hundredfold. Suddenly he becomes a prince among the people because he, his fields grow and produce even in a time of famine. And it's through this that Isaac receives all of his blessings and his household grows and increases in the same way that Abraham's family increased after he had a similar interaction with Pharaoh the king of Egypt and also with Abimelech. And so he becomes blessed and what we have is we have a story where Isaac digs three wells and the first two wells are contended over with the people of the land and the third well then is able to be used by Isaac and is able to be a blessing and he, the uh, people of the land don't contend with Isaac over the third well. The rabbis say that there's a parallel between the three temples and these three wells that Isaac digs. Don't have the time to go into all of that detail. One of these years we'll probably uh, focus in on that at some point in time. God continues to bless uh, Jacob through this, uh, through sorry, bless Isaac through this promise. He confirms the covenant again, saying, "I'm the God of your your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you, multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake." If you remember, God made covenant with Abraham, but covenants are so powerful they continue on through the lineage and through the children. So that what we have is we, even descendants of Abraham today, can take hold of the covenant that God made with Abraham and receive those blessings as well. So the story continues on. He makes covenant with Abimelech that even though he, Abimelech has a little bit of a conflict with them, they still make covenant. Isaac still is a man of peace, of hospitality, even though he is powerful, even though he, God has promised this land to him, Isaac could turn to the sword and conquer the land of Canaan. But instead, his faith in the Lord allows for, he makes peace with them, he doesn't go and take what God has promised to him, he waits for God to deliver on those promises. Again, looking at the... Um, uh, what kind of man Isaac was and that he truly is the son of Abraham and one of our patriarchs that we follow after. At the end of chapter 26, we have this very interesting um, description of Esau where it says when Esau is 40 years old, that also means Jacob is 40 years old as well, 
He takes wives of the land of Canaan. He takes Judith, the daughter of a, Hitt- of a Hittite, and Bosemath, who is also a Hittite, and they were a grief of mind to Isaac and to Rebekah. What we have here, very interesting. Esau is 40 years old. Isaac had Esau and Jacob when he was 60 years old. That means Isaac was 100 years old when Esau takes these wives. It, I can almost see what Esau is trying to do. Esau is trying to continue on the covenant, proving he is the son of promise. He sees this pattern of, of Isaac being 100 years old. Abraham was 100 years old when he had Isaac. You can kind of see Esau acting on his own to try and produce heirs and to, and to be that child of promise. He acts on his own accord, not because God is with him and God is instructing him, because what it turns out is these two women are women of the land. They worship other gods. They're idolaters. Yet Esau brings them into the house, and they were a grief to Isaac and to Rebekah for all of their lives. Now the story continues in Genesis 27, and this is the one that many of us are familiar with, where we say where Isaac blesses Jacob. Isaac is old, and his eyes grow dim, so he can't see anymore. And he calls to his son Esau, and because his eyes, have, he's now gone blind, that then he now, he's desiring to eat of the game that Esau always gives, to be comforted. In fact, I like to think, this is uh, just an assumption on my part, that this was the day in which Isaac's blindness had taken full effect. He could no longer see. That his eyesight started to fade over the years, and but now this was the day in which now he truly could not see anymore. Now, doing the chronology study, we look at Isaac, we believe, was about 137 years old at this time. Because of this genealogy, we always have this perception of that these sons, Jacob and Esau, when they went to go be, get their blessing from Isaac, that these were young men. And that Jacob, who's going to follow the instruction of his mother, Rebekah, to go put on Esau's garments and to go act as Esau, to make food like he would serve it to Isaac, who's now blind, and so that he could receive the blessing. We always perceive these men to be young men and that this was a young man following the leading of his mother. They were at least 40 years old because Esau had already taken wives when he specifically says he was 40 years old. Turns out that if you go if you go on the life of Jacob and then go backwards in time through chronology through his time in Egypt through the life of Joseph to his twenty years with Laban that he flees to following these events, uh, Jacob and Esau, the youngest they could have possibly been, was in their fifties, fifty six years old. This is an interesting thing when you have your mental picture of these Bible stories going on. These men were already of age to receive this blessing from their father. Very interesting when we now picture that in our mind and when you actually go and look at the ages of these men. So what happens is Isaac is now blind. He wants to pour out a blessing upon his son. And so Esau goes into the field. Now, Rebecca, being the one who remembers the promise that was made to her, remembers this promise. She knows that he, that Jacob is supposed to receive this blessing. Jacob had already purchased the birthright from Esau, and now he's to receive that firstborn blessing. So there's this deception that takes place. Rebecca, like I said, causes him to put on Esau's clothes, make him make him like a like a hairy garment, and to make food while Esau is out hunting. And Isaac kind of starts to sense the deception. 
He hears the voice, and he hears the voice of his son Jacob when he's expecting Esau. And he tastes this food, and he says, how were you able to hunt this food so quickly? And Jacob even brings God into it and says, God's provision allowed me to, to, hunt, this, to, to hunt this game and bring it back so quickly. So you see this very interesting deception where the, that commandments are broken here. Lies are formed, are told to Isaac. How is this acceptable? How is this seen as something that is okay for us to look upon Jacob when Jacob is called a deceiver by brethren? How do you necessarily argue with that? In fact, I heard a teacher one time talking about how Rebecca doing all of these things, that Rebecca took this upon herself to get this blessing, and that almost rebuking the actions of Rebecca. Now, the scripture never does that. We never see God rebuking Jacob and Rebecca for their actions. What I see is this, is that at this time, Rebecca is the messenger of God. She was the one that received the word. You might think that she took it upon herself that it's like God can do all things. That it could have happened that when Isaac is about to bless Esau, that an angel could have appeared before Isaac called said, No, remove your hand, just as it happened with the binding of Isaac. Do not bless that one. Instead, bless this one. An angel of the Lord could have been called, and that's how this could have happened without Isaac and Rebekah, or sorry, without Jacob and Rebekah looking like deceivers. But what we have here in our story, though, is Rebekah, at this time, is the messenger of God. She was the one that received the blessing. We don't see anything else talked about other than that's what God had said. And that's who he decided to carry on his will. So we should never look at these things as, look at that, at Rebecca and Jacob as deceivers. This was God's will all along. Sometimes he'll use, sometimes he can use miraculous things to speak to cause Abraham's hand to not lay a hand on Isaac. When he was about to slam and an angel calls from heaven and says, do not lay a hand on him. That works. But you know what also works is for God to call somebody, a human, a man, even a woman, that, can, that will hear the words and she will be the, the, what is the messenger of God. We should never look down upon that on whoever might carry the message of God, ever. Because that's how God had this fulfilled. The blessing that Isaac puts upon Jacob is a very powerful one. And he says this, and he says, Surely the smell of my son is the smell of the field. He's thinking that it's Esau, which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren, that means your brother, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. What a powerful blessing that it is that Isaac gives this to Jacob, and that this is truly the blessing of promise, especially when you say something as in, Cursed be the ones who curse you, and blessed be the ones who bless you. That is continuing and passing on that covenant that Abraham received from God. Esau comes back in from the field and is unhappy with this as he starts to learn. He goes and he brings the food before Isaac and he says, Now bless me. And Isaac says, Who are you? I have already blessed you. And he cries bitterly and he pleads with his father to give him a blessing as well. He re Esau receives a blessing, but it's not as good as the one that Jacob received. 
We hear that now in Genesis 27, verse 39. He blesses them with this. Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and the dew of heaven above. That's a great blessing. But your sword you shall li- by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother, and it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. You're going to live as a man of war. You're going to live with strife and with, and with suffering. You're going to be in conflict with your brother from this point on. Not the blessing that he wanted to receive. He wanted to be the powerful one that anyone who comes against him would be cursed. And so what this does is this creates the great conflict between Jacob and Esau where Esau accuses him of stealing the birthright which he bought. Accuses him of stealing the blessing which I believe God is orchestrating these events through who he spoke to, through his mother Rebekah. And Esau intends to kill him. In fact, he, he says, in his heart, he says, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. I will kill my brother Jacob. What he intends is he, when, when Isaac, for the love of his father, he's, when he passes away, then he will go and enact his vengeance upon Jacob. What's very interesting, I told you already, Isaac lived longer than all the other patriarchs. And at this time, even though he went blind, it was still approximately another 40-some years until Isaac passed away. He lived the last years of his life blind, as a blind man, but he didn't pass away. Even when Jacob returns back to the land after spending time with Laban, his father was still alive at that time. And so that Esau still, if he was going to uh, commit to, to killing his brother, yet held his sword because of the love of his father, his father still lived for a number of years after that. That's possibly a a miracle or something that caused Jacob to be able to prevail in time without his brother coming against him with the sword. Our story concludes with Rebekah hearing of the words of of Esau intending to kill him that that she sends Jacob to Laban to flee from the household to go and and find a wife there. He's old. He's later in age now. She, knowing the story of the the patriarchs before, knows the way this kind of works is they seem to go back to this land and that's where they seem to find a wife. So it's kind of like Rebekah still knowing the way the Lord works in this way go back to that place and that's where he intends and he finds his wife or wives as we'll learn in the few, in tomorrow or next week's story sorry so that is the, how our story concludes with uh, God blessing um, Jacob and then we do have the, the continuing narrative of what happens to Esau Esau continues to prosper and that blessing does um, it does fulfill him that he becomes a great nation as well but this sets the stage. This sets the stage for the conflict between Jacob and Esau. This sets the stage for Jacob to leave this place with the blessing and all the promises that of the covenant made through Abraham. And that this starts the story of Israel and the planting of the Lord. And how he will continue to prevail through all things through the rest of our story and the rest of our scripture. Again, very interesting when we look back and we think about these men, how old they were when these things took place. Sort of adjusting our perception is something that I think is very important. That sometimes we perceive things initially 
And our perception is often wrong. Our perception often looks and sees immediately that uh, these were probably young men receiving the blessing from their father. Actually, they were older men. Our perception might see Jacob and Rebekah being deceivers in the process. But, however, I believe God's fulfilling his promise through them and using them as he sees fit. So we should always pay attention to our perception and make sure that those things don't lead us astray. Those don't cause us to think something that is not how God intended it to be. But instead, look at the truth. Study the word. Go into the details, learning the heart of these individuals and the heart of God that he has given his promise and his covenant through these patriarchs. And that covenant extends through generations, through all the love, that because of God's love for his servant, for Abraham, that we also are loved because we are descendants of that man that God made covenant with. So let us always adjust our perception, not to our own, what we might think and see, but to what God has intended and what God has called forth from his word. Amen? Heavenly Father, let's, uh, we come before you here on the Sabbath day. We thank you for all the blessings that you give to us here. We thank you for the blessing and promise and the covenant that you have made with these men. And Father, we um, look forward to continuing to read the stories as we go through the weeks here of the Torah cycle. And may you make it new and fresh and alive to us every single day, Lord. As we read your word and as we follow the stories of Jacob and his sons and your deliverance from Egypt that we will read soon, Father, pray that you just continue to make it alive, make it powerful, for your word is powerful, Lord. May it speak into us and may we be encouraged each and every week that we hear your words and your instructions and we read the stories of old and we learn of your nature, Lord, and your love and your passion for your people, Lord. So, Father, we love you, we bless you, we thank you for everything that you do for us and that for choosing us from among all peoples and for all of the instruction you give through your Torah and your instruction. So we bless you on this Sabbath day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Natan Lanu Torah Temet Vachayalam Natabatoheinu Baruch Adonai Non Ten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. All right, Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and um, again, this year we're teaching from the New Testament portions that relate to the Torah portion, and our Torah portion was Toledot, Generations, but it was predominantly about uh, Jacob and Esau and Jacob's family as they begin to emerge. So with that reminder of our portion, let me take you to Romans chapter 9, and we're going to address a very important principle uh, that came out of the Torah portion, but here in the New Testament, Paul's going to make reference to it and teach it um, as a part of the New Covenant. Uh, At Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 6, let me read for you a portion of this passage. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. 
And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say the molder. Why did you make me like this, will you? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Uh, this passage uh, Paul gives is a comprehensive argument that comes from many stories in the Torah. And the reason we focus in on it, this particular Shabbat is because it mentions specifically Jacob and Esau in this profound statement, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Now, anytime we hear those things, there's a natural tendency on our part to question, well, is God really being fair about that? Uh, in fact, in one of the most recent QA programs uh, that has come out, in fact, uh, it's the most recent QA we had, we had a young man who wrote a question, and he asked this question. He said, why does it say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? That doesn't seem really fair, does it? You know, to, to Pharaoh. I mean, if, if God's really setting him up for failure, well, then how can he judge him fairly and appropriately? There's a couple of things that we have to address in this. And by the way, you saw that mentioned in this passage again as well. That question about hardening the Pharaoh heart ties right into Jacob, um, I loved, Esau, I hated. But it also ties in this. What about the whole nation, the Jewish people, the children of Israel, versus all the other nations, the Gentiles? What, what about that? Does God have a right to go out and uh, to judge Israel and at the same time bring the Gentiles in to his kingdom? Does he have the right to do that since he pledged and made all these promises to Israel? So Paul's addressing all of these uh, fundamental issues. I want to address uh, each one of these briefly. Uh, because Paul lays the argument out and uh, to 
we really don't have the right to question what God is doing. You know, that it's God's mercy that's really, and who are we to question his mercy? Which takes fundamentally back to this point. We, as human beings, we as men and women, the scaling system that we use for rendering judgments in relationships with one another is really the concept called fairness. Um, you know, sometimes we adapt eye for eye, you know, tooth for tooth. We're, we want to be balanced. We want to be fair. We want to have equal weights and measures. In other words, how you be judged about a certain thing is how everybody should be judged by that. And, and you know in the world that we live in that we have a certain level of judgment for common people. There's a different level of judgment for elite people. And in our own nation, you know, that, uh, and I'll, without mentioning names, Hillary Clinton, for example, <laughs> it, it seems like escapes justice for things that a, a, an average person would be severely judged on. You know, I, for one, when, when the first stories came out about her over this email thing, uh, you know, I, I used to be an engineer in aerospace. I used to work on classified programs. You know, secret top secret material. I used I used to work on that stuff. In fact, in one point, I was an security officer. I was in charge in a facility of maintaining the safeguarding of all classified material that the fellow engineers were working on. And there's very strict rules about when you take classified material out of a secure container, how you work with it, and how it has to be returned to the container. You don't, in fact, you can be fired for having a classified material that even got the cover on it that says secret tops. You leave it on your desk and you go to the bathroom. You leave it on your desk unattended. You can be fired for it. And, oh, by the way, they will come after you. Uh, DIS will come after you and charge you with failure to safeguard classified material. There's a specific law for it. So when we heard about, for example, Hillary Clinton and all these classified emails and compartmentalized emails and content and so forth being sent through an unsecure email box into a place that is not secure, unsecured facilities, people who don't have clearance to have access to this stuff, and that you've made it available for whoever, including her emails that were captured and published out to other people. Um, in my world, fair is fair, okay? She should immediately have been arrested by the FBI. She should have sat in jail until they held the trial on her, and then she should have gone to prison for probably 10 to 20 years. Now, in the case of where I was at, you could go to Leavenworth. That would have been a great place for her to go. But you see, remember, there's a different set of rules. We found out the FBI didn't pursue it uh, for the dumbest reasons. By the way, there is nothing in the law that says you had to have the intention to do harm. That law has no clause for intention, but they made up this rule, literally made it up, not the legislature. The FBI, James Comey, made up this rule, and the attorney general made up this rule, the president made up this rule, what well, wasn't her intention. 
And so that's what's going to excuse her from despicable behavior that anybody else in the country, military, civilian contractors, whatever, we'd be slam dunked. So we look at that and we say, that's not fair. That's injustice. And so we, that's, that's our world. We look at the world in terms of justice, uh, fairness, equal fairness, and that's how we judge matters. But let me tell you that that system that we have right here doesn't work when it comes to God. Let me say that again. Our sense of justice doesn't work when it comes to what God does. And here's the reason why. Our system is based on what we can observe on the outside. It is not based on what is inside the heart. God can see inside the heart as well as outside. By the way, we simply deal with things as they happen or they have been in the past. God knows the future. He sees things in advance. His measure of justice is way above ours. It's far more than fair. In fact, it's just and it has mercy. And the concept of weighing justice and mercy, you know, if you think about this for a moment, if you're being merciful, it shuts down justice. But if you're being just, it shuts down mercy. And we as men, we can't balance that. It's like a set of scales in front of it, and you go up and you touch the mercy thing, and the scales tilt. You touch the justice thing, the scales tilt. It's out of balance then. Only God is able to weigh justice and mercy fairly and appropriately. And his skill to do that is way beyond our skill. Um, Let me go one step further with that. Uh, Typically, believers, we will observe out outward behavior, speech and behavior by a person, and they will make a judgment about whether or not we think, quote, they're a believer, quote, they're righteous, uh, and whether or not we think what their eternal reward will be. And if we see what appears to be a righteous man, a good man, and he's doing many good things, and, and he has a testimony of faith, we'll go, oh, he's a righteous man, and therefore heaven is what is in front of him. Whereas we see a despicable man, a criminal, uh, things like that, we, we'll say, oh, no, the, the, the severe punishment awaits him. And we'll go around announcing that. We'll go around and, oh, well, surely that, that's what's going on here. When it's very clear that God is the only one that makes that determination, the fact that we just made that determination or just spoke that out is ridiculous. By the way, let me go ahead and just tell you right off the bat, maybe this will come as a shock to some of you, God is not planning on consulting any one of you for the eternal reward for anybody. Even for yourself. He doesn't take your consultation into mind. His decision about you is strictly his decision about you. And that's because he's going to be both just and he's going to be merciful. Every person will get both, and only he can judge that. Case in point, 
we have um, the the thief on the cross. You know, they, he was Yeshua was there on the cross, and there was a thief on either side. Both of all of them were condemned, but one of them, you know, appealed to the Lord, and the Lord responded to him by saying, "You'll be in paradise with me today." I want to ask you a quick question. Was it the one on the right or was it the one on the left of the Messiah? Which, which one did he talk to? And that's a good example of we don't know. We observe certain behaviors. We hear certain things. But we don't really know what is the final judgment with regard to this person. That's only God is the judge. And it has to do with his judgment is far above the concept we understand to be fairness. The concept we call equal weights and measures. Does it, God use that? Yes, but it's at a much higher level. And it includes the provision of justice and mercy, which we don't have. We don't, we don't do that. We just make a, a snap judgment about fair. And, of course, in the world, you know, this business of fairness between men doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Case in point are the leaders of our nation. The shenanigans they're getting away. The filthiness, the unrighteousness they do. You know what we just learned um, today? You know, all this sexual harassment stuff that's coming about, different uh, national leaders and so forth that's coming out. Did you know that the House of Representatives has a $15 million fund that is operating and has been operating for years that pays off the claims of women who've been sexually harassed by members of Congress. A secret fund where the congressman will sexually harass and she'll complain and will keep it quiet and they'll pay her off. That's been going on for years. Um, we have the uh, example before us today, uh, real time, uh, this Judge Roy Moore from Alabama, who used to be a, a, a Supreme Court justice down there. He's the guy that stood up for the Ten Commandments, and they ruled against him, and they had to remove it. And so he's decided to run for the Senate as this very righteous, very conservative, very religious man. And now, all of a sudden, accusations have come forth from his past. Many repeated accusations come forth from his past that he's messed around with young girls that weren't adults and harassed other women. And the very thing that's, that's going on, here's a man who stood up as was an example of righteousness amongst us in our community, stood up for the most, the, the, the most honorable of conservative values, and all of a sudden it turns out that his behavior is just as despicable as the ultra-liberal progressives. Being evangelical and being conservative is not a safeguard that you have misbehaved. The whole world has a sense of corruption to it. That which we would judge as being righteous is, turns out there's unrighteousness. And a lot of times there are people that are accused as being unrighteous and suppressed that they really are the righteous ones. So our sense of judgment on things is completely skewed. With that said, let's go back briefly for a moment to the story of Pharaoh. 
And the scripture says that Pharaoh thought he was a god and that he was obstinate against God, against Moses and the children of Israel, oppressed them. So he's, he's a bad guy. We admit it, okay? He's a bad guy. He's a bad dude. And then in the course of God pouring out different judgments on it, there's a place in the scripture where it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the question comes down to, well, whoa, wait a minute. Well, it, it, that's not really fair. You know, God shouldn't have hardened his heart. God should have left him kind of alone. And then whatever happens, that, that would be what is fair. That's what would be appropriate. But it has to do with not understanding what does the expression God hardened his heart means. Anytime the scripture talks about a hard heart, it's talking about treachery. When in a marriage, when, when a couple becomes hard of heart, and by the way, that's what Yeshua talked about in, in a marriage when it comes apart, it's because of hardness of the heart. That's the reason why Moses had to give us a get, a divorce, because of hardness of the heart. It's because of treachery. Treachery will lead to death if it goes unchecked. And essentially what we have is we have Pharaoh... He starts to be obstinate. God begins to manifest himself through the different judgments. And what does Pharaoh do with each judgment, with each manifestation as to who God is? And Moses is, by the way, so you might know, Pharaoh, that God is. So it's to manifest God to him. And each time he sees another manifestation of God, his heart becomes hardened more. And the expression, and God hardened his heart, is more simply more of that as God manifested himself, he chose to be hardened of the heart even more so. And so as a result of God manifesting himself, you could say, because he showed him something new, it hardened his heart. It's a little bit like the example of when you have an abusive husband, violent uh, when he's physically abusive, you know, you ever heard the thing where the woman barely does anything and all of a sudden he starts to wail on her and then he complains. He complains and says, why are you making me do this? Now, we all know nobody made him do it. But you could say the woman made her husband wail on her. And it would be his logic, his thinking. The same is true of God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart was so hard to begin with, all we did was make it manifest. As God became manifested, Pharaoh's heart became manifested. And But the logic, the just part of this, we're not looking at it from God's standpoint, we're looking at it from man's standpoint. The same thing is true of Jacob and Esau. The reality is, if we go back and examine the story uh, that's given to us in Toledot, when Esau came in and decided to, he wanted a bowl of the lentil soup and was willing to sell his birthright for it, there's a lot of dynamics in the background as to what was going on. First of all, it was Abraham's funeral. The family had all gathered. And Jacob because of Esau's absence, had to step up and provide the mourner's feast, the mourner's meal. And so he had made lentils. 
lentil stew uh, for the mourner's meal. Esau wasn't there to do the duty. So when he shows up, he's very cavalier about all of this. And so he just says, hey, give me some of that stuff. Instead of, well, what's going on and what's really happening here? And Jacob is wanting Esau, look, Esau, if you don't want to be here and you don't want to do this, then sell your birthright to me so that I can continue to honor our grandfather. And he could care less about Abraham. He has no relationship with his grandfather and his relationship with God. He's just doing his own thing. The disrespect shown to Abraham, the cavalier attitude shown at his funeral, and his agreement to sell away and not value his position in the family, the heritage that he had received from Abraham and Isaac, his, his, his disregard and disdain for those things, Interestingly enough, God said, uh, Jacob I have loved, Esau I hated. I can tell you that when it comes to the concept of fairness, have you ever been at a family funeral where somebody turned up and, say, showed up drunk and acted like an idiot and was an embarrassment to the family and and treated the, the deceased with disdain and dishonored their person? You know what usually happens in those things? Some of the family members go up to the saints, say goodbye and don't ever come back again. We don't want to see you ever again. And they'll kick them out of the family for being so dishonorable, you know, for such behavior. Well, we can see the human part of this. This is what Esau did. So maybe God had understood some things, you know, about what was going to happen. So when he made those statements to Rebecca that the older will serve the younger, maybe he knew what was going to be happening. He knew what Esau was going to do. He knew what Esau's life was going to be all about. And so he made a decision. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to deal with this. I believe that all of us have a destiny in the Lord. I believe God has purposed for every one of us to be a part uh, of his kingdom. That when the Messiah came and did the work of redemption, it was for all people. However, I think God also knows that some people are not going to receive that and accept that. So what he will say of them is that... They are stored up for judgment. They're here, but they're just making a big wood pile for judgment. Is all they're doing with their lives. And the concept of your destiny or predestination, where Paul talks about that he predestined for us, it's simply a statement of the fact that God purposed to do good to all of us. Some of us have elected to do it and we're fulfilling our destiny, and some are not electing to do it and are not fulfilling their destiny. They have chosen and they're part of another destiny. And God knew about it. He knew about it from the very beginning. But along the way, the, the operative guidelines that God uses is justice, justice and mercy for all of us at the same time. 
And he says the guilty will not go unpunished. By the way, that's for the righteous and the unrighteous. The principle applies to both. We look down now uh, to the last of the concepts that Paul talks about here in this passage. Uh, He briefly mentions the creator, the authority of the creator. Uh, the potter maker, the man who takes the clay and the dirt and he forms and shapes a vessel. You know, and will the vessel then say, I don't like my shape? And, and the, does the vessel have that right to say that or make that argument? Well, I would prefer to be such and such. Well, the pot, the, the pot doesn't get to tell the potter what to do. Well, the same thing is true of you and I being created by God. We really have no right to tell the Creator, well, I don't like the world you set up. I don't like the way you made me. I don't like the fact that you made me a man or made me a woman or that as I've grown older, I've gained weight. I don't like that. It's your fault, God. You know, I'm going to take you to task, God, because I don't like certain things. How ridiculous is that? It is utterly ridiculous. I'll answer my own rhetorical question. And yet, that's exactly what we have going on in the world today. You know the whole transgender issue going on? Can you imagine this? A boy is standing up and saying, I don't want to be a boy, I want to be a girl. You know, God, you didn't do it right. Or a girl standing up, I want to be a guy. And God, you didn't do the right thing. You know, to do that, you know what you have to do? You have to dismiss God completely. You have to dismiss him and his authority as creator of all things. You have to argue with him and say, why did you make me the way I am and I'm going to change it? It's like the pot saying, I know you made me into a bowl, but I'm going to be a pitcher. Now, you can take a bowl and you can pour stuff out of it, but you're not a pitcher. You're still a bowl. And the example of other things of God's creation. God has created a whole set of laws to live by. In the case of uh, having created us and so forth, he said certain behaviors are unacceptable for you to do. By the way, there's certain food, uh, certain animals that I consider unclean. I don't want you to eat. That's not going to be food for you. Now, we have the wisdom to understand you can't go around eating poison. But why is it we don't have the wisdom to understand that when God says don't eat that, we don't eat it? Why do we think, oh, we're going to change the rules. The rules don't apply to me. For my Christian friends who take issue with kosher, do you know what you're doing when you're taking issue with kosher? You're telling that the Creator did it wrong, and you're saying that you're the pot and that you're telling the potter how things ought to be. It's that simple. So is that behavior consistent with the mercy of God? Is that consistent with the righteousness of God? Is that behavior consistent with being what God has instructed us to be? No. That's sheer out-and-out disobedience even countering him as the creator. Finally, it comes down to the issue of Jews and Gentiles. 
And it is a fact that in the day of Paul's uh, life, one of the great things that had already taken place was because of the Pharisees and Sadducees, they had set up a distinction between Jews in Jerusalem and the rest of the other people. The Jews looked down their noses at the other tribes. The Jews held the Gentiles in disdain. In fact, in the temple, which was never authorized by God, they built what is called a middle wall of partition. There was a little sub-wall that was built in the court of the Gentiles, and it had a sign posted on it that said that if a Gentile goes beyond this point, he's subject to death. And so a Gentile could never approach into the court of Israel into the women's court, he, he could never go up and actually see the his sacrifice to a priest. The priest would say, do it, and then he would have to stay outside of the court of the Gentiles while it was done. That was never God's intention. It was always God's intention that the whole house would be a house of prayer for all peoples. And that if you presented a gift to the Lord, you could come in and present your gift just like any one of Israel. And, and the priest would uh, take care of you, and you could be there and smell the fragrance of the altar and see your sacrifice put on there, and you would receive it back. And, and, and the whole worship of God by bringing your gifts to the Lord. But they put this middle wall partition. So in his day, there was this incredible disdain and separation between Jewish brethren and Gentile brethren. And as you know, in Acts chapter 15, we had a big council meeting on what are we going to do with all these Gentiles that are coming to faith in the Messiah? How, how can they be a part of things? Because it had already been highly, highly disturbed. Interestingly enough, Paul, in the rest of this chapter... It goes on to quote that it's always been God's plan to bring the Gentiles into the faith. I stopped at verse 24 of chapter 9. Let me continue to read for you. Let me read that verse again and then read to you what he quotes from later. Even us whom he called, he also called, not from among Jews only, but from also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there you shall be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel will be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved, for the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And verse 29, and just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a posterity, we would have been as Sodom and we would have been as Gomorrah. Verse 30, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at it by law. The Jews would assert the Torah and the law to fend off the Gentiles. And Paul's making the argument, look, all of us came into this by faith, not by the law. And the Gentiles can come into this by faith just as easily as a, a Jewish person can come in into it. And oh, by the way, in Romans chapter 4, he reminds us, 
When exactly did God set up this concept of faith that leads to righteousness? Was it before circumcision? Yes. Was it before the law? Yes. That in fact what faith did was establish the law. The law was built on top of this faith, not the other way around. And it wasn't that the law was here, and that's how you got saved. And then you get faith through the Messiah, and he's changed it. No, it never was changed. It always was faith from the very beginning, and the law was built on top of it. But boy, have we got that all distorted. My Jewish brethren in the days of Paul got this all distorted. Instead of teaching faith leads to righteousness, or faith is counted as righteousness, they said obedience is counted as righteousness. That's not what Abraham taught. That's not what Moses taught. Let me tell you fundamentally one of the problems of the church today. See, the Torah taught obedience produces blessing. If you keep the commandments of the law, your, your way is successful and you prosper. That's what the law teaches. If you disobey the law, your way is the way of cursed and, and failure. So what do they teach? What's the church teach today? Same mistake, but reversed. They say faith produces the blessing. Faith doesn't produce the blessing. Faith is counted as righteousness that leads to salvation. Blessing comes from obeying. And that's the example of faith was first established and the law was put on top of it. And by the way, the last verse in Romans 3 says that specifically. That faith has established the law from that. Now, God set this whole thing up. Who are we to challenge God and tell him, no, you didn't set that up right. You're not being fair. You're not doing it right. Where did the church get the idea? Well, we saw what you did, God, with the Torah, but we don't really like that. I don't like that clean and unclean stuff. And so I'm going to go around saying that Yeshua changed all of that. There's no more clean and unclean. By the way, if, you, if it's sanctified by Jesus, you can eat anything you want, including pig and shrimp and crustaceans, and even though it will kill you, but it's okay because Jesus has said it's okay. No, he didn't. That's a falsehood. That is air. And instead of teaching it correctly, they've made the same kinds of mistakes that the most basic hypocrites and the most basic sinners have made. You've defied God and what he has said, and you're holding him in disdain, and you're doing your own thing. And it comes back to hardness of the heart and treating the things of God with disdain. We got a lot of Esau's running around today that mock and disregard the things of God. So what do you think the end result will be for them? Well, I can assure you it won't because of the world population stand up and says, well, you've got to be fair, God. <laughs> it won't be determined by that. It'll be determined by the justice and mercy of God which is far above us. So that's our portion for this week. 
Shabbat Shalom. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing. and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around saying, yes, Shabbat Shalom, everybody sing Shalom 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 Put a smile upon your face He's got the whole world in His hands So obey His commands And you will know peace
Show.